quick show of hands. How many of you guys um, traveled this summer? Anyone travel at all this summer? Okay, keep your hands up if you traveled um, out of this country, international. Okay, we've got a few international travelers. Okay, you guys can put your hands down. Um, I, myself, I had the um, pleasure of going to Africa uh, at the beginning of June, and I got to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. It was so awesome. Um, I got there, and I got to uh, uh, view, uh, look at a, an orphanage uh, for the purposes of having a, a mission trip there. So my goal was to scout it out, and I plan on having a mission trip in Africa uh, here soon. Um, we had our, our pastor right now who's out of the country. He's in Moldova, and I think at this moment he's probably preaching to a Romanian congregation. So he's, he's international. Uh, last week we got to hear from the Mexico City mission team. We got to hear from them, and they shared stories about their amazing experience in Mexico City, how they did VBS, um, and just how God is working powerfully there. And one of the comments that, that stuck out to me was that how things are different in Mexico City. Uh, one of the kids got up here and, uh, and said that, that things are different in Mexico City. And I agree, things are different anywhere you travel. Um, for instance, in Mexico City, it's, I, I went there uh, last summer and the summer before that, and it's different in the, in, in the way that people greet you. So it's common that if you're in Mexico City, total strangers will come up to you and they will give you this full body hug and they will kiss you on the cheek. And as an American, that's kind of awkward. Okay, that, that's a little strange. I, I like my bubble. I like my personal space. But that's something you have to get used to very quickly when you're there. Um, in Africa, for instance, people greet you with the phrase, Hakuna Matata. You guys say that after me? Hakuna Matata. Okay, thank you for your participation. Okay, so... You're greeted with that, that, that phrase, and, you know, we, we watch a lot of Lion King in my house, and uh, that, that's on a lot, and so it, it's, do you know how hard it is not to break out in song when people greet you in Africa? Um, but getting around in different countries is different as well, so in Mexico and Africa, things like signs and lights are kind of more guidelines than they are rules and laws, and so like in Mexico, for instance... Um, they, they do drive on the right side of the road, but, but if you want to turn left, this is counterintuitive. So in America, you want to turn left, you get in the left lane, and you put your turn signal on, right? I can't, my, my wife's always getting after me about that, not putting my turn signal on. So you get in the, the left lane, and you put your turn signal on. Now in Mexico, if you want to turn left, you get over to the right lane, and so this is like a moment where you get really close to God because you're in the right-hand lane and you see the, the light turn green and you go to your destination hoping and praying that the cars that are coming in your way don't hit you. So that, that's kind of counterintuitive. In Africa, they, they, they drive on the, on the right or the left side of the lane. Being in different countries means you hear different languages, means you eat different food, means you get around different, you're around people who just do things differently. And this idea of things being different is much of what Jesus taught about. Jesus being from a foreign land, from a foreign country, being king of this country. Much of his teachings revolved around, one, he's king of this country. He's not just a citizen there. He is king of this country. 
And so his teachings revolved around demonstrating his, his authority. And two, it revolved around talking about, well, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. And he used a variety of stories called parables to illustrate, well, what the kingdom of God was like. Jesus ushered in a new kingdom, and as Christians, we are citizens of this new kingdom. Now, now citizenship is much different than just visiting. So becoming an actual citizen of a country is very, very difficult. So it was easy for Kate and I to be citizens of the U.S. because, well, we were born here. By virtue of the fact of being born here, we were lucky enough to automatically claim American citizenship. Uh, my daughter was the same way. Born here in Georgetown, automatically an American citizen. My son Dax, a little different story. He was born in Taiwan under Taiwanese citizenship. And so he was a citizen there. And he, he became an American citizen by, because he was adopted by American citizens. So by virtue of having parents being uh, U.S. citizens, he was able to become one after the process of adoption. But what if you're from a foreign country, um, you're, not, you're not being adopted, you live there, you grew up there, and you want to move over here and be a, a citizen permanently. And that's, that's more difficult. The other day I was talking to a friend, and she said, and she grew up abroad, and, and she um, moved over here in her mid-20s, and she was talking about the process of uh, citizenship. And she said that, first of all, she had to get her green card. And then after getting her green card, she had to wait three years before she could apply for citizenship. Now, three years is pretty short. Um, sometimes you have to wait 10 years. Sometimes you have to wait more than, than 10 years. But she had to wait a long time to just even apply for citizenship. Uh, once she was able to even apply, they checked her background. And then she had to schedule an interview where she came in and she demonstrated her ability to write and read and speak English. And then after that, that she had to do what's called a, a, a civics test. And so she had to answer questions about how the U.S. government works. She had to answer questions about U.S. history. And, and that meant that she had to name three local congressmen, uh, the name of some senators, the name of our governor, and the name of all the U.S. Supreme Court justices. I would fail that test if I took that today. Now, after passing the test, well, she had to wait several weeks to find out if she passed or not. But after she found out she passed, she had to come in and swear an oath to our country. And so being naturalized as a citizen meant she had to renounce her former country. She had to renounce her former country and come in and pledge allegiance and swear an oath to this new country. Now, she described that moment as a sad moment. And I want you guys to think about that. Think about if you grew up in a foreign country and you have fond memories there and traditions and your family's there and you're moving to a new country and all of a sudden you're asked, you have to renounce that. You're no longer a citizen of that country anymore. Um, that would be a sad moment. And so traveling and visiting is one thing. But changing citizenship is much more difficult. It means that you have to change your loyalty, your language, your culture, your traditions. And physically, we are citizens of America, but spiritually, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This means that we are to renounce our spiritual and emotional loyalties. 
It means we are to change the way that we speak to those around us. To learn new ways of getting through life. And one of the biggest civics tests, if you will, is found in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 13 through 19, this is a a part of of the text where Jesus uh, had been teaching a lot about the kingdom of God. The kingdom is like this, the kingdom is like that. And he's having a conversation with uh, his disciples. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter announced, answered, You are the Messiah, son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whether you bind, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so that central question right there, who do you say Jesus is? That is a question that everybody must answer in their life. Who do you say Jesus is? And that question must be answered with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. And some people said, well, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, you're definitely someone special. People agree that you are someone special. We're going to say that you're a prophet. That's a safe answer right there. But Jesus also wasn't interested in what, well, what do other people say? He was interested in, what do you say? And that's when Peter chimes in with confidence and clarity. You are the Messiah, son of the living God. And so I want to take a sidebar for a moment and talk about Peter in the scriptures. And often Peter is the example of what not to do in scriptures. And and if you read on, right after this story, you'll see what I'm talking about, but that's another sermon. And I want you to think about if you lived in the times of Jesus, if you were one of his disciples, and the gospel writers are finishing out the gospel several years later, and there are stories about you in there, and you're often used as that example of what not to do. But I thank God for Peter, because this is a guy with zeal. He's a guy with noble intentions. He's a guy that just wants to get it right, but somehow he bungles it up. But Jesus was patient with him, just like you and I. I think we can all relate to Peter here. Even though Peter messes up a lot, here he's used as a positive example. And Jesus applauds Peter saying, Peter, you get it. You get it, Peter. You know exactly who I am. You answer that. It's not just an intellectual thing. You're not just checking the checkbox. Like You know, and Jesus knew his thoughts. He knew his heart. And he knew, Peter, you get it. You got it. And so he goes on to say, he introduces a word. This word called church. Now this word church is only used twice in the Gospels. And that word church, the original language is ecclesia, and that means gathering. Gathering in the name of Jesus. And coming to terms with Jesus in your life is central to kingdom citizenship. It is central to our faith. And the church must be built upon this foundation of knowing exactly who Jesus is. Otherwise, we're just a social club. We're just an organization. That is what distinguishes the church 
differently from any other organization is this idea of Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. He's the one who has authority. And Jesus says nothing will overcome his beloved church, not even death, what he refers to as the gates of Hades. He gives Peter this authority. The keys of the kingdom of heaven means he has access to the wisdom of heaven, the, the workings of what this kingdom means. Jesus preached and, t- and teach, taught about this kingdom, and he has wisdom of understanding the workings of how it, of how, how it goes. And we have that through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have these keys of understanding that power to bind and loose refers to the church's power to teach authoritatively, connecting the wisdom of heaven to the issues of the day we have going on around us. As citizens of this kingdom, we need to understand how this kingdom works because church life reflects kingdom life. And I want to make it clear that church and kingdom are not the same. Church does not equate kingdom here. We get to be a part of kingdom expansion, but we have not arrived yet. Church refers to gathering. Kingdom refers to reign and rule. The church is the vehicle for, through which Jesus uses us in powerful ways to expand God's kingdom in Moldova, in Mexico City, in Africa, all around the world here in Georgetown. We get to be a part of that. And we know that kingdom citizenship is determined by our loyalties to Jesus. And what else did Jesus, did, uh, Jesus teach? He taught about his authority. He taught about his kingdom. So what else did he teach about his his kingdom. And he used stories known as parables to kind of give people an idea. Well, it's, it's like this. And so the first parable that he talks about earlier on in chapter 13 of Matthew, and he talks about the parable of the sower. And so Jesus tells a story. He says, well, the kingdom of God is like a, um, a sower. It's like a sower, and, and, and he sows seeds and the seed lands in, in four different kinds of places. And, and the point of the story isn't about the sower. It's about the seed or the soil type. And uh, the first type of soil lands uh, in the path. And, and there's all these kind of paths that are winding through uh, the farmer's field. And, and, and some of the seed lands on this rocky, hard path. And it just kind of bounces off. And the, sur- and, and, the, and the birds in the air come and they eat it. And then he says, well, and then, and then there were some other seeds and they... They fell in this rocky soil, and, and there's, there are these, these parts of the soil where the limestone is kind of close to the, uh, the top, and so there's like, you know, this much depth of soil. And he talks about how, yeah, those seeds did spring some life, but, but the sun heated up the soil and dried it up, and then it withered. And, and then he talks about um, the thorny bushes. He says, well, and then the, there was like a third group of seeds, and it landed in the thorny bushes, and... Uh, well, what, what do thorns do? Well, they, they deprive the seed of what it needed to grow. It was deprived of sunshine and everything it needed to, to thrive. And so it was choked out. But there was this fourth soil that the seeds fall in. It's this deep, rich, good soil producing various, numerous types of crops. He tells a story to, to talk about our responses to the kingdom message. And that there's four different kinds of responses to that kingdom message. Being a citizen of the kingdom means you receive God's word deeply in your heart. It means that you're always seeking to know Jesus on 
deeper level. And so I want to back up for a minute. Jesus attracted crowds because of his wisdom and miraculous works. It says that uh, when he goes back to his hometown, it, it says that that's the reason why he attracted people, because of his wisdom. And so he claimed that he was a king, but he didn't look like it. He wore the trappings of a homeless person. Despite his ordinary appearance, he did things that got people's attention. But they just didn't know what to think about Jesus. He did these awesome things. He healed people. He fed people. And then he started teaching. And he started telling people, this is who I am. Son of God, Messiah, Savior, King. And people were just like, I, I don't know what to do about that. They just couldn't figure him out. So they would reduce him to, well, prophet. That's, that's a safe answer. Or he's a pretty good guy. I think everyone can agree. You hear that word Jesus, even outside the church. And people don't know what to do with that. Well, he taught about love. He taught good things. He was a, he's a pretty good guy. Other people would hear this story, this type of story. He's, he's trying to talk about the kingdom of God, and he tells a story. And, and when you ask a question, you want a direct explanation. But Jesus doesn't give a direct explanation. He tells a story about the kingdom. And so I'm sure a lot of people heard that story. He's like, the kingdom of God is like a guy throwing seeds into a field. And I'm sure a lot of them just walked away confused and disappointed. And disappointed because Jesus just, he didn't live up to their expectations. There's a lot of hype about this guy. And uh, when it comes down to it, they didn't, he didn't live up to their expectations. And Jesus even goes on to echo this sentiment when he quoted the prophet Isaiah saying, well, this is, people, we already know this. You will, ever, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving, for this people's heart has become calloused. And so go back to that scene. Jesus has a, he's actually in a boat here because there's so many people there. He's in a boat and he's, you know, anchored kind of out in the water a little bit and he's sitting down because that was the, the posture of a rabbi back then. And people are gathered and they're listening to these great teachings. And he's telling these, these stories. And do you think the, the, the disciples understood that? Do you think Peter understood exactly what he meant? Well, no. And what do they do? The thing that's different from the disciples' reaction to Jesus versus the crowds was that the disciples didn't get it, um, but they trusted the source. They trusted in who Jesus said that he was. They didn't get that, that idea of, of, a, of a sower. And so they ask him. There's lots of private conversations where Jesus has with his disciples, and he's explaining. Don't be afraid to ask Jesus if you don't understand something. They certainly didn't. They wanted to know more. They wanted to mine deeper. They wanted to understand what Jesus meant. They weren't afraid to approach the king and ask. And so think about how easy it is to be dismissive of things we just don't understand. And the truth of God is indeed buried in a world of distractions, and information, opinions, agendas. It takes a willingness to sift through all of that to find and discover the truth of God's treasure. Jesus commanded, but seek first his kingdom and righteousness. That word seek is a very active thing. They didn't get it, but they still wanted to know. Seek, seek, seek. When I was younger, 
God's word fell on rocky, callous places in my heart. God's people casted many, many seeds in my direction, and they would just kind of bounce off my heart. But people didn't give up. God's people didn't give up. God didn't give up. Soon, many years later, my, my heart softened to receive the message of who Jesus was. And in fact, that idea of not knowing what to do with Jesus, Jesus sat on my coffee table for 10 years. Okay, when I was 19 years old, someone uh, bought me a Bible. Uh, one of my best friends, his, his family, they bought me a Bible uh, for Christmas. And as a 19-year-old, I remember getting this gift and thinking, like, this is kind of a strange gift. I mean, I'm a good person, all right? I don't need a Bible. And I was kind of offended by it. And so I took this Bible that represented Jesus, and I, didn't, I couldn't throw it away. I wasn't going to do that. I didn't want to get struck by lightning. And so what I did is, was it sat on my coffee table, and it was a coaster for about 10 years. I, just, I didn't know what to do with it. It collected lots of dust. But after a while, I had to do something with it. I had to make that decision to dust off Jesus and come to terms with exactly who he was in my life. And thank God for his people not giving up on me. There's another story that, that, that Jesus talks about. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And in the parable of the weeds, you have the field, which represents the world. And then you have this sower who represents God. And God is sowing good seed. It's wheat. He's sowing wheat. And the wheat grows a little bit. And then an enemy comes in the night under the cloak of darkness, under the protection of, of night, and sows another kind of seed. And the next day, they see weeds growing in there. And the sower's like, I didn't plant those weeds. An enemy did that. And the helpers asked Jesus, or, the, or the, the owner in this case, well, can we go pull up the weeds? And he says, no, let the weeds and the wheat grow together. He says, let them grow. And so the idea of the story that Jesus is conveying is that the kingdom somehow is in the world, the field, and somehow the kingdom is superimposed in the world. It's like this invisible thing. We don't really know where it is. We can't really point to it. You can't draw lines around it. It's not tangible. But somehow the kingdom is superimposed in the world. The kingdom is growing and expanding as weeds attempt to hinder growth. They keep growing in tension with one another. There's this tension of, of the, the wheat growing and the weeds are growing. And their whole goal is to frustrate the effort of the wheat. But there's a harvest time. Jesus talks about a harvest time. It's a metaphor for final end-time judgment, a time of reckoning. And that means that there will be a time where the wheat is separated from the weeds and the sheep are separated from the goats and the good fish are separated from the bad fish. At harvest time, the citizens of God, of God's kingdom, are separated from the citizens of the enemy. That there is this, this judgment. And that's, that's not a, a thing that is preached about much in church. It's something that's avoided. It makes people feel uncomfortable. But I feel as pastor, it's my job to preach the full counsel of God's word. Yes, Jesus is Savior. He is King. He is High Priest. But He is also Divine Judge who will pronounce His judgment upon the world. There will be a day of reckoning. And it makes no one happy to talk about that. He uses this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, to evoke the horror of this final judgment day. Earlier on, Jesus says, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. 
He says that on this harvest day, it's going to involve a separation of many from God. And remember that phrase, gathering, a gathering of those few into close, intimate fellowship with Christ, by Christ, to Christ. Gathering, ecclesia. Those devoted to Christ will be gathered to him. In another set of parables, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed and yeast. He tells this parable to communicate that the kingdom is actively expanding, but a little bit goes a long way. Tiny is effective. And this tree image of the mustard seed being one of the smallest seeds grows into this towering tree, conjures up Old Testament injury, uh, I'm sorry, imagery of passages that picture a great kingdom as a large tree with birds flocking to its branches. Jesus is drawing a connection between small beginnings and the glorious end of his kingdom here on earth, its future glory. Yeast, on the other hand, doesn't grow like the seed. It, it, it expands, it rises, it transforms, it permeates. It transforms the, the batch of dough from within. Mustard seeds suggest growth, and yeast suggests transformation. The kingdom is expanding and transforming. This is both an interior thing and an exterior thing. This is something that both happens inside of us, this growing and transforming. And this is something that happens outside of us, growing and transforming, size, numerically, transforming the community that we're around. Is the word of God, I ask you this today, expanding inside of you? Is it taking you over? Is it expanding into your thoughts? Is it taking over the way you think about things and people? Is it transforming you? Are you allowing God to use you to expand his kingdom, to transform life around you? And this last parable set is the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl. And back then, um, they didn't have safe deposit boxes. And so what they would do is they would take their valuables and they would bury them on their property. And so think about you have a land like Israel and it's ravaged constantly. It, it's common for people to have buried their things and to move on. Now what's not so common, what's like, you know, winning the lottery is actually finding, actually stumbling upon a treasure. And so Jesus tells a story about, well, there's this workman, and he's in a field, and he spots a treasure. Now, under rabbinic law, it would, it would forbid him to actually lift the treasure out of the ground, because if he lifted the treasure out of the ground, then that property would then belong to the master. And so he sees it, he spots it, he identifies it, he walks away, he sells everything, and he buys that field. It's his. In this way, the kingdom of heaven is worth the cost of discipleship. The kingdom of heaven, yes, pursuing it requires sacrifice. It requires spending a lot of time and energy, giving things up, sacrificing the flesh, changing the way we think about things to align with kingdom thinking. But it is worth the cost of discipleship. In a nutshell, what does citizenship in the kingdom entail? Well, it calls for loyalty and devotion to Jesus and Jesus only. There are no, there's no dual citizenship in this kingdom. Jesus and Jesus only. Kingdom citizenship means that we're all family. We're all family. 
Jesus talks about that, that citizens are bonded because of their love for Jesus, and that makes them brothers and sisters. There are, there are no borders to our kingdom. We have brothers and sisters in Mexico. We have brothers and sisters in Moldova. We have brothers and sisters in the Middle East. They are everywhere. We are a family. Kingdom citizenship means the word of God is mined deeply in our hearts. The word permeates and transforms us daily. And the church is the gateway into the kingdom. Kingdom citizenship means we have an enemy who is actively frustrating our efforts. Guys, have you ever been involved in church ministry before? You know what I'm talking about. The conflicts, the messiness, the arguments, the divisiveness that happens sometimes. Um, Sure, it could be a spiritual thing. It could be an ego thing or a pride thing. The enemy doesn't care. All the enemy cares is that he frustrates the work of kingdom expansion. And none of that's from God. But we have that guarantee, that promise, that no matter how big our egos get, no matter how many arguments we cause, nothing is going to overcome the church. That God wins in the end. In the end, the church prevails and God wins. And so that's for that reason, well, all kingdoms have a currency. They all have a currency. And our, our, our currency is mercy and forgiveness. Church life is messy. We talked about life groups earlier. Sometimes things can get messy. But our currency is forgiveness and mercy with one another. It's belief and faith. The currency of the world is idols and distractions. The language of the world, every country has their own language. The language of the world is deceit and lies. We live in this era of lies where people just lie to each other and they, they live in lies. But the language of the kingdom is prayer, where we understand truth. We understand the truth of what reality really is and how to love God and other people. Let's pray.